All views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Welcome to our second episode of FML Podcast. Framing Money Laundering. As usual, thank you for listening in. Today, our topic will be Arab Bank. But before we go into the topic, we would like to first clarify a couple of points from our previous podcast. In our first podcast, when we gave an overview of anti-money laundering concepts, we talked about FATF, Financial Action Task Force, and we mentioned FATF as a UN body, however, that turns out that's not completely accurate. FATF was established by the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. Thank you very much for the clarification. As usual, please, um, as you're listening, think of any feedback you'd like to give us and just comment on our Facebook page or Twitter and we'll be happy to take a look at that. Now, uh, as we continue on with our episode, this Arab Bank episode will be a uh, terrorism financing episode, mainly. Okay, before we get into the case too deeply, um, let's define terrorism financing here, because there is a slight difference from terrorism financing and the topics we talked about in our previous episode. Mm -hmm. So... um, FATF defines terrorism financing as the financing of terrorist acts and of terrorists and terrorist organizations. That is a, an important and a helpful definition, especially for legal purposes. Um, the, it's a topic that includes financing operations, um, sending any money to a member of a terrorist organization, even if it's something operational, just to pay their rent or utilities or, you know, a bus ticket to get to Syria, for example. Or their example. groceries. So or their groceries. <laughs> energies energized enough to go over and commit whatever terrorist acts they intend on committing. Very good point. <laughs> I mean, we saw a lot of that kind of thing with ISIS, where they would, yes. you know, they would have doctors and things that they would pay for. And mm-hmm. because they're supporting a terrorist group, they're included in that. And so I think this definition uh, maximizes the ability to prosecute um, terrorist financiers. Mm -hmm. So let's compare and contrast that to the main topic of our entire podcast, (laughs) money laundering, (laughs) the traditional money laundering. What, uh, let's see, what is the, what would you say are the main differences on the outset? Well, I guess the main difference between money laundering and terrorism financing is that you don't have to have criminally derived funds to fund terrorist groups. Say if you are working a regular nine-to-five job and you are using your Mm -hmm. own money that you earned legitimately to help fund those terrorist organizations and their operations, that still counts as terrorism financing. Okay. Whereas money laundering, you need to commit a crime, one of those predicate offenses that we talked about in our previous episode, in order to be convicted of money laundering. Oh, okay. And another point is if a bank accidentally or unknowingly facilitates a transaction for terrorism financing, they can still be punished for that transaction. 
Oh, okay. So. But as far as the traditional money laundering, it's not quite as strict. It's not as far as the unknowing processing, right? Um, I think. Or is that something they I, share in common? I think they do share that in common. But if, say, a bank does unknowingly facilitate money laundering transactions, if they do have a money laundering compliance, anti-money laundering compliance program in place and they cooperate with law enforcement, the penalties and the punishments won't be as steep if they, say, acted like they didn't do anything or if they didn't have an AML compliance program in, in place. So oh, okay. both, both applies to terrorism financing and money laundering in this case, I think. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Exactly, okay. yes. All right. So that, that's another reason why we're talking about this topic over the podcast is, you know, we want everybody to, to be aware <laughs> about this. So back to the terrorism financing, we have our expert, Professor Rusin, with us. As you all probably recall from our first episode, Professor Moyara Rusin is our resident expert. She is a professor here at the Middlebury Institute, and she has been teaching courses on money laundering and countering uh, threat finance for quite some time now. So she is well qualified to help us answer our pressing questions about countering the financing of terrorism. There are two important concepts that we'd like to discuss. Well, actually, there are two acronyms of the same concept. There's CTF and CFT. Now, CFT is countering the financing of terror, which is what everywhere in the world except for the U.S. refers to terrorism financing as, or the framework to combat that, should I say. CTF has traditionally meant countering terrorism financing or terrorist financing, uh, we can see, however, that that is quickly changing, and more on that from our resident expert. Professor, there has been a recent shift in what CTF means recently. As John mentioned, it traditionally means countering the terrorism of financing, but could you explain to us what the new abbreviation means and why that's been changing lately? Well, in recent years... The CTF abbreviation actually stands for counter threat finance. At least all the policymakers in Washington, D.C. prefer to use that moniker of counter threat finance because sometimes it's, it's very difficult to say whether or not something fits the definition of terrorism financing and what about these narco-trafficking groups in Mexico, for example. Uh, some of them use terrorist tactics, for instance. So, and also, when, when we use that term counter-threat finance, it broadens the definition to include proliferation financing as well. Thank you very much for that, Professor. Could you also explain to us if these FATF mutual evaluations are effective in improving a state's defenses against terrorism financing, if at all? That's a good question. FATF doesn't have any in enforcement capability. However, there is the naming and shaming effect, if you will. They do have a, a blacklist, of course, that has you know North Korea and Iran on it, but then they have a, a, a dark gray list and a light gray list, if you will, and being on that list makes life very difficult 
for financial institutions in that country. It makes it more difficult for government as well as, as the private sector in that country to get loans. It makes it more difficult to conduct trade transactions. It just makes life more difficult and more expensive because it's going to be more difficult to set up correspondent banking relationships with the rest of the world. It's going to be more difficult to clear dollar transactions. It's uh, You don't want to be on one of those gray lists. It doesn't mean that you can't operate internationally, but you have to go through more steps. So you don't want to be on that list. When you are put on that list, most countries will do whatever it takes to get themselves off that list. If that means doing a better job of enforcing their existing regulations or imposing new regulations and passing new legislation. And we've done a tremendous amount of work since 9-11 in getting countries, we, we meaning the international community, in getting countries to pass better legislation when it comes to terror, uh, counterterrorism financing. It's uh, oftentimes Initially, the, the legislation was just too narrow in its, its definition, so it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to prosecute cases. So that has changed. So we've seen a lot of positive developments in that realm. I would say the new challenge now is getting countries to pass better legislation when it comes to proliferation financing. All right. Thank you very much, Professor, for that answer. And speaking of proliferation finance, that could possibly, wink, 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 be topics of future podcast episodes. All right. After that uh, very helpful definition of terrorism financing and countering the financing of terrorism, let's uh, segue into the Arab Bank case. The incidents in the Arab Bank case are, just as a warning, stemming from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We try here at FML to be as apolitical as possible, so please don't misinterpret anything that we say to be supporting um, one particular political end or another, but in order to define a terrorist financing event or terrorist financing case, we need to define the terrorist incidents themselves or the terrorist organizations themselves. So uh, the injury that um, led to both of these cases occurred within the second intifada from 2000 to 2004. And uh, there are two cases that we're going to look at more closely. One is the Lind versus Arab Bank, and the other is the Jesner versus Arab Bank case. These cases were both results of suicide bombers. The, uh, the plaintiff in... Lynn versus Arab Bank was the wife of John Lind. John Lind was an American citizen living in Israel when killed by a bomb. His wife sued Arab Bank under the Anti-Terrorism Act, beginning the case Lind versus Arab Bank. Jesner versus Arab Bank, however, had 6,000 plaintiffs, uh, many of which are not U.S. citizens and were therefore unable to sue the Arab Bank under U.S. jurisdiction in the Anti-Terrorist Act. This uh, presents a really interesting dilemma, which we will discuss in further detail later in the podcast today. But first, let's talk about martyr payments. Martyr payments, uh, roughly defined, are payments to families of deceased suicide bombers. 
Martyr payments are defined in the U.S. Supreme Court blog of Jesner versus Arab Bank as stipends paid by, by terrorist organizations to families of deceased suicide bombers. As you can see, this fits our FATF definition of terrorist financing, although these martyr payments, which in one of these cases is processed by Arab Bank, is not a direct funding of a terrorist act itself. It is, however, operational support for a terrorist organization. It supports the terrorist families. And thus, it, by connection, it is terrorist financing. Madrasas are another part of Islam that is often exploited by these radical terrorist groups. In and of themselves, madrasas can be simply schools where the principles of the Quran, where the teachings of Muhammad, uh, where other Islamic texts are studied, and where Islamic law is taught. However, these terrorist groups will often siphon off money from otherwise good organizations, whether they simply put a box, um, see who, who donates money to the box under that same principle of zakat, um, and then um, unbeknownst to the owners of the madrasas, take it away. Um, it could be setting up fake madrasas to have all of the funds diverted to that, uh, originally intended for that madrasa, diverted to this terrorist group. Uh, it's very possible. In fact, if this sounds a lot similar to the front companies that we were talking about in the episode one, it's because it's the same exact principle here. You have madrasas that was established by this terrorist group simply to earn money. And many of the uh, terrorist groups don't stop there. They also use this uh, madrasas to indoctrinate and to radicalize. The reason Saudi Arabia is especially important to this case is that uh, the state religion of Wahhabism is very is much more similar to the Salafist ideas that terrorist groups commonly have than other religions, um, other widespread branches of Islam. In order to understand the sources of finance, we need to understand the financial framework. How does the money earned in Saudi Arabia, for example, at the Intifada al-Quds or the al-Shahid Foundation, uh, for example, how, do, how does money raised there make its way to the Palestinians. That is made possible by SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. This enables uh, institutions to communicate financial information on a secure, seamless, and automated platform. Correspondent bank accounts are also a key aspect to this system enabled by SWIFT. These correspondent bank accounts are banks that allow access to the U.S. financial system, facilitating transactions between parties using different currencies. But to explain all the details of this financial system is beyond me. So I will turn to the powers that be. That is our resident expert. <laughs> the powers that be. I like it. Professor John was talking about correspondent banking. Now, we've heard of correspondent 
and respondent. Can you explain to us the difference between those two? So the, the respondent is the overseas bank that wants to apply for dollar clearing privileges and, and other types of uh, services. So it needs to establish this relationship, say, with a US bank, for example, although it could apply for correspondent uh, banking privileges with banks anywhere in the world. But let's say it's for dollar clearing privileges and other US-related business. It will have to demonstrate if it has an adequate anti-money laundering program in place. Um, the correspondent bank, which is, say, the larger bank in the U.S., will typically send a team, a small team, of people to go and visit that respondent bank that wants to set up this relationship and, and vet them. They will ask them questions, do somewhat of an AML audit, if you will, of what that bank's needs are and risks are as well, and whether or not the correspondent bank in the U.S. is willing to take on those risks. If this is a bank that has a very high-risk customer profile, it may be that the U.S. bank just doesn't think it's worth it and they will say, no, we won't set up that correspondent banking relationship. Great. Thank you, Professor. In your response about correspondent and respondent banking, you mentioned dollar clearing. This function of dollar clearing, could you help us to understand how that has expanded the reach of U.S. regulatory agencies? Oh, that is a sore point for international bankers everywhere. The extra jurisdictional reach that the U.S. Treasury, as well as other regulatory agencies in the United States uh, and different agencies within Treasury, as well as the Federal Reserve, do have extra jurisdictional reach for any bank that does dollar clearing transactions, which they all have to do if they want to operate internationally. And they can get in trouble. And it's for that reason that they need to adhere to OFAC's sanctions. They need to, and that, and that includes uh, listed terrorist individuals and terrorist entities as well. And if they don't, if they don't have adequate compliance measures in place, they can get fined very steeply in the billions of dollars. HSBC was fined nearly $2 billion. BNP Paribas was fined nearly $9 billion. And why? Again, because the fact that they are using U.S. dollars then allows the U.S. Treasury to impose such steep fines. Thank you, Professor Rusin, for that explanation. And as always, we are glad to have you on the show. Now that Professor Rusin's um, explained the relationship between a correspondent bank, we've heard how that relates to a respondent bank, how the correspondent bank completes the function of dollar clearing, and the involvement of the U.S. Treasury. 
let's apply these concepts to the current cases at hand. We have Jesner versus Arab Bank and Lind versus Arab Bank, just as a reminder. These, both of these two cases involve the New Jersey branch of Arab Bank. And in both of these cases, it is the correspondent bank, which means that it performs dollar clearing between the martyr's family, or the bank that contains the martyr's payment, and the bank that the Al-Shahid Foundation, or the Intifada Al-Quds, stores its money. How do we know that? Well, the proof is in the financial intelligence. There must be some financial evidence for any organization to be accused and convicted of financing terrorism. The evidence from these swift transactions come in the form of who owns the account? The account number that is sending the funds. We have the account number of those who are receiving the funds. We have the country and bank of origin. Then we have the destination country and destination bank. These are all critical bits of financial intelligence. And it's important that the compliance program at the bank is adept enough to recognize and respond appropriately to that. Just as a reminder from our previous episode, we have on the front line of financial compliance tellers, bankers, and other bank employees that interact with customers. They need to implement measures such as know your customer rules. The compliance office just above that will investigate transactions that have been flagged by the tellers, bankers, or by an algorithm as suspicious, often utilizing software to do so. They write suspicious activity reports, which are all submitted to financial intelligence units for further investigation. On the next level, internal audits are performed by the bank's compliance office to ensure that proper compliance procedures are being followed. And finally, a regulating agency will perform external audits to determine whether the bank is in compliance with federal or state anti-money laundering statutes, exacting a fine if the bank is found non-compliant. All of these levels of compliance contribute to identifying financial intelligence, use of that to keep institutions in check, and to prevent terrorist financing and money laundering from occurring. Yeah, and John, to basically summarize what you just mentioned just now, those typically make up the different lines of defense against AML and countering terrorism financing. For example, the first line of defense is the policies and procedures of these banks and financial institutions that the tellers, the so-called foot soldiers in the battle against <laughs> money laundering and terrorism finance, these are the people who are on the front lines, who interact with customers on a daily basis, who can see things that may not come through on a piece of paper with just a financial intelligence, such as the way a customer is acting, are they nervous, are they... Are they getting instructions from someone who's accompanying them? These are all things that we need to be aware of when investigating 
anti-money laundering and threat finance cases. The second line of defense, as you mentioned, was the ongoing compliance function, you know, the software, making sure that you have SARS and that your compliance function is doing its job. And the third line of defense is the internal audit function, which is performed in the compliance office, as you mentioned. And if you successfully implement those three lines of defense, then hopefully you will not get a huge fine by these regulatory agencies, as we've seen that uh, Professor Rusin mentioned earlier, the $2 billion fine for HSBC for not having an adequate compliance program, the $9 billion fine for BNP Paribas. Uh, At the time of the HSBC fine, that was the biggest fine in the history of anti-money laundering compliance. And then BNP Paribas came around and people were like, oh, crap, we have to really get our compliance program together because if we don't, we're going to be hit with billions and billions of dollars. And I think this is how banks and other financial institutions were able to really take this thing much more seriously because in the past, it wasn't taken that seriously. So I think those are very fascinating and interesting developments in the field of AML CFT. Well, thank you very much, Brianna. That was a thorough audit of my section about audits. Um, I like those examples that you mentioned. I think that's a key. Both HSBC and uh, BNP Paribas were landmark events in the case of uh, Mm -hmm. countering money laundering, anti-terrorism financing. If anything, we learned that um, money talks in a way that these banks, these institutions can listen. Yes, fees talks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Nobody wants to get slapped with fees. All right. So while that, that doesn't quite wrap up our two cases, it does wrap up our episode. These cases are ongoing and we will provide you updates as we learn more about them. Yes, but before we close out this episode, let's just do a quick review of some of the key terms that we've discussed in this episode, first being the definition of terrorism finance. Uh, Remember that one of the key differences between money laundering and terrorism finance is terrorism financing doesn't have to be money derived from criminal activity, whereas money laundering has to be derived from criminal activity. Recall the concept of predicate offenses or specified unlawful activities that we discussed in the first episode. So terrorism finance is a way to fund terrorist operations such as food to keep the fighters energized, rent, weapons, and any other material support to terrorist groups and their operations. Another key term or key concept is correspondent banking. Now, John, would you like to uh, go over correspondent banking real quick? Certainly. So as you remember, in a correspondent relationship, you have a correspondent bank and you have a respondent bank. So remember in this case, we have Arab Bank being serving as the correspondent bank, and then we have two separate transactions with a respondent bank, which the correspondent bank processes the transaction between banks of different currencies in a function known as dollar clearing. Now, dollar clearing is another one of those key terms that we have. Without the function of dollar clearing, 
we wouldn't have we wouldn't be talking about this particular case. Exactly. Dollar clearing is the linchpin. Dollar clearing is what allowed these cases, what allows the the U.S. Supreme Court to hold these banks liable under the Bank Secrecy Act. Did you have any comments you'd like to add on the function of dollar clearing? Well, just to expand on what you already mentioned, and as what Professor Rusin mentioned, that this extra jurisdictional reach of the Department of Treasury over dollar clearing functions still remains a controversial topic, particularly among uh, international bankers, as Professor Rusin indicated earlier, because, you know, while they are, say, headquartered somewhere else in, in the country, the fact that they have to use dollar clearing transactions because the dollar is so prolific and so important in international banking that they had to adhere to all of these sometimes convoluted and numerous regulations that OFAC, Department of Treasury, Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. all these different regulatory agencies, they have to follow as a result of those dollar clearing. So dollar clearing, as you said, the linchpin and why these different regulatory agencies based in the U.S. have so much reach over international corporations and entities. Mm-hmm. And uh, those keys are the mo- those key terms are the most important ones that we think. Um, let us know if there's anything else that interests you. Feel free to comment, uh, retweet, and ask us any questions you think would be interesting to hear in a future episode. Yes, and you can also email us at framingmoneylaundering at gmail.com. Song is titled No Cadillac by Loyalty Freak Music, provided by Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. You can follow us on Twitter, and you can find us at our website at framingmoneylaundering.midcreate.net. That's framingmoneylaundering.midcreate.net. Dot M-I-D-D, create, dot